Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, up to chapter 3, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the benefits of being relatively isolated over these past months and having some restrictions on gathering is that many have grown more appreciative of the beauty of public worship. Now, some of those who have grown more appreciative may have been weary of the routine in the past. They may have gotten up on Sunday mornings and thought, oh, I guess it's time to go to church again. But then when that was taken away and they realized what they were missing, and maybe others who never have wearied of public worship and having it taken away was was very difficult to go through the week without gathering for public worship. Whereas some may have wearied of the routines in the past, now Uh, They're treasuring it highly. Um, And they that's uh, that's the case for those who are already gathering. We're treasuring this experience. But also those who are still longing to gather and for whatever reasons that are sufficient to them uh, are not able to gather yet. They're longing for it as well. But we have to admit that sometimes, at least in the past, we may have been weary. Weary with our worship. That's how the people were in in Malachi's day. Because what they had done is they had corrupted their worship. And then they got weary with the invention of their own hands. They had made worship into their own image. And then they got tired of that kind of worship. And so there's this call in Malachi to come back to true worship. They got weary with their worship. But their weariness caused an even bigger problem. And the the first disputes that... God brought to the people through Malachi, focused on this this weariness and this corruption of worship uh, led by the priests. But now it's flipped around. Because at first the people were weary, and they sniffed at the offerings, and they, they detested them. And now we find that that caused an even bigger problem. God was weary with them. 
they got weary with him. And now this dispute is about God being weary with them, which is very, very serious, of course. And that's the accusation. And you recall how these disputations or these disputes happen in Malachi. Uh, God comes through Malachi and says something. He makes some sort of a declaration, positive in one case and usually negative. And then the people say, oh yeah, what do you mean by that? And they challenge God. And then God responds patiently and he explains what he means. And then he shows the proper response to what he's trying to communicate. So, what's the accusation? Very clear. You have wearied me with your words. Verse 17. And then we have the challenge right away, still in verse 17. The people, as it were, kind of put their hands on their hips, and they say, how have we wearied him? Who? You're talking about us wearying God? How? Prove it. Show it. And then, Malachi quotes a couple of proverbs, a couple of sayings, that seem to be circulating among the people. You see, you remember that the people were back in the land, they'd been exiled, they're back in the land, and they expected glory when they got back in the land. And what did they find? Oppression, poverty, uh, uh, suffering, enemies all around. And so they got cynical. And this, these were the, the expressions that were going around. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. And then the second expression was, it was actually a question, where is the God of justice? So these were the cynical sayings that were circulating among the people. And that's the answer. That's the the answer. That's how you're weary in God, with your words, by saying and asking such things. Now, we have to look at what they say here. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. And we have to admit that we probably had that idea. Whether or not we've expressed it or not, we probably have looked around at the world, and we've said, God, why is life so great for those people when they are demonstrably evil, according to your word? And why do you appear to favor them? Why do you appear to bless them? Are you on their side? Because they have so much more than I have. I who am trying to serve you. And Why is it, Lord, that you seem to favor them more than you favor me? With comfort, with pleasure, with health, with wealth, with whatever it might be. Why, Lord? And, and they're not the first people to ask this. If you go to Psalm 73... I encourage you to read all of Psalm 73. It's a reflection on this question. Because the psalmist was saying, Why? Why why have I bothered to try to serve you, Lord, when you seem to favor those who hate you? Are things backwards here? And the psalmist works through that. Or you can read the whole book of Job, which is a question about this. Why? Why does, why does something so terrible happen to someone who's so dedicated to the Lord when the evil prosper? Or Habakkuk, another prophet. Habakkuk begins by saying, Lord, what are you doing? Why are the, the evil prospering and, and your people are suffering so much? So this question in and of itself is not a, not a wrong question to ask. But the problem here in Malachi is it had, it had hardened 
into cynicism. They weren't asking the question. They were making the statement. They were saying, God is on their side. Everyone who does evil, God delights in them. They were basically accusing God of injustice. And now notice something. Notice something. Whenever we ask this sort of question or make this sort of complaint, we are assuming something always. And the people were assuming something here. And what's that? We're the good guys. That's the presupposition behind this sort of complaint. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. Why are they getting it better than we are when we, the good guys, should be treated better than they are? That's the presumption always when this is sort of, this question is asked. And then the second one, this question is, where is the God of justice? Now, this is the same attitude, and they weren't asking his whereabouts. Like, oh, where is he? They were, they were declaring his absence. They were, they were saying by this cynical question, the God of justice, this, this God of supposed justice, he's not around. We don't find him. We don't seek him. Now, God answers this, and he answers it in three ways. First, there's a general answer, and then he answers each of these statements, the statement and then the question. So first, the general answer. The first answer is this, that my messenger will come. Verse 3, Behold, I send my messenger. Now, the word my messenger is the word Malachi. So the name of the prophet is my messenger. And here that shows up again. And God says, I will send my messenger. And my messenger will come to clear the way. This is translated to prepare the way, but the idea was he would clear out the obstacles. And this was what happened when when some sort of a, a king or authority would come, he would send his servants ahead to, to clear the path. We still have that, don't we? When we have the, the secret service come in and, and clear the way. And, and that's what was happening here. And God said, I will send my messenger and he will clear the path. And then, once he has cleared the path, the Lord Himself would suddenly show up. Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will clear the way, prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, who's coming? Let's notice here, who's coming. First, my messenger is coming, and then it says, the Lord says, that He Himself is coming. The, the Lord whom you seek is coming. And this Lord is also called the messenger of the covenant. So there are two messengers. There's my messenger, and then He prepares the way, and then there is the messenger of the covenant, who is also the Lord. Now we, we need to keep this straight. Because this question of the messenger of the covenant, we need to see that he is the Lord himself. So he's distinguished from the Lord, and he is also the Lord. And this is similar to the, the mysterious angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He sometimes seems like he's an angel, and he sometimes seems like he's the Lord himself. An angel means messenger. That's the same word in Hebrew. They, they didn't have two words. So, he sends this messenger of the covenant, and this messenger is the Lord himself. Now, there may be some irony here. He says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And there may some, be some irony here because they really weren't delighting in him, were they? 
But they were ostensibly seeking him by saying, where is the God of justice? Well, the answer is, he's coming. You you say you're seeking him. You you say you're looking for him. You, You say you delight in him. Well, guess what? He's coming. He's coming. And then, when he comes, he will show who delights him. He will show in whom he delights. And it will not be the evildoers. It will not be the evildoers. Because you're, you're saying by your cynical statements that, that he takes delight in the evildoers. Well, when he comes, you will see in whom he delights. And it will not be the evildoers. And then there's this, this typical Hebrew repetition, uh, this question in verse 2. Who, who can stand or who can, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And there are a couple of images used here. Refiner's fire. And this is, what does a refiner of metal do? He he heats up the metal so that the the impurities rise to the surface and can be skimmed off. It's a a way to separate out the, the, the true metal from the impurities. That's how he purifies it. But it applies fire. It's hot. And then there is the fuller's soap. Well, there wasn't soap in those days. Uh, there was lye, an alkaline, a caustic substance that they would use in the preparation, in the fulling of, of uh, lamb's wool. And it was also a, a, a hot process, a burning process that would separate the, the good substance from the impurities, from the, the filth. But it, it, was, it was a burning process as well. And then it says he will be like the fire and the lie. And then it says, changing the image a bit, verse 3, he will sit as a refiner. So first he's like the fire, and now he's the refiner himself. He will sit like a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, etc. Now, what's going on here? He's saying, you're asking for God to show up. You're asking for an intervention from God. And you're expecting something. You were expecting him to come. Didn't show up as you supposed. But he will come. And when he comes, we'll really find out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And you need to think about this before he comes because you're just assuming that you're in the category of the good guys. And of course, the, the Levites and the priests, they naturally would have assumed that they're the good guys. After all... They're the religious workers. They're the ministers of the temple. And with whom is he going to start the purifying here? He's going to start with them. Because they were leading the way in the corruption of the worship of God. And so he's going to start applying this fire and this lie to these so that he will purify them. And the result will be, the result will be, that they will offer righteous sacrifices. Verse uh, 3 still. It says, He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. So he's going to start with the leaders, purify them, and then he's going to get to the whole people. And that's what has to happen. Start with the leaders and then purify. That's, that's often how revival takes place in the church. Starting with ungodly pastors. 
and bringing pastors to repentance and faith. And then those pastors begin to preach the gospel in newness and as real believers. And and the church begins to be revived. And that's what he was going to do here. The result, the response, the proper response will be what? Will be pure and acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Now, there is a another section in verse 5 where he goes back from the response, back to the explanation about what he would do when he comes. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, and here he names seven sins. It's not an exhaustive list, but these were, these were grievous sins. Some of them were capital sins, uh, deserving the death penalty in, in ancient Israel. And he, he names them here. He says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, and the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So these these seven sins, the first three are what we could call Ten Commandment sins. Having other gods, uh, committing adultery, bearing false witness. These are questions of, of moral uprightness. And he says he will testify against those. But the other, the other sins that are mentioned here are part of, of the, uh, the, the law of Moses. And they have to do with how the people were treating the vulnerable in their midst. The, the hired man who depended on his day wages and they were withholding those day wages from him, uh, the, the orphan, the, the widow, and the immigrant, the foreigner among them, these were all protected groups of people. And in the law, the people were told, the, the people of Israel were told to take care of them, not to oppress them, not to take advantage of them, but rather to be kind and generous and merciful to them. So we have moral uprightness, and we have mercy. We have a love for purity, and a love for the poor. And these two things went together in the law. It's interesting that today we've separated these, haven't we? We've separated these among political groups, and we've separated these among theological groups. And those who skew more towards what they would call themselves conservative, either politically or theologically, are all about moral uprightness. Whether they're morally upright themselves or not is another question, but but that's at least their, their banner. And those who skew more in the direction of political or theological liberalism, they, they, their banner is more love for the poor. Now, whether they actually are, are serving the poor or not is another question. But that's the, these are the banners under which these groups tend to, tend to gather. But here in Scripture, we find that, that, that the believer loves uprightness and loves the poor. These aren't things that should be separated in the life of Israel or even today in the lives of believers in Jesus. So, the final sin, though, the final is the one that, that causes them all. He says in, in verse, the end of verse 5, And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's, that's the big problem, isn't it? They don't fear Him. That's why they were able to improvise and corrupt their worship and do whatever they want. And uh, they didn't fear Him. They were able to ignore the laws about how to worship Him. They were able to, to ignore the laws about moral purity. They were able to ignore the laws about loving the, the poor and the widow and the foreigner. They were able to ignore all these. Why? 
They really didn't fear God. They weren't afraid of Him. They didn't stand in awe of Him. They didn't respect Him. And so they didn't respect His law. That's the situation. But God says, don't worry. I'm coming. But when I come, is that really going to be a good thing for you? You see, there's this reversal in the prophets. The day of the Lord. And the Israelites were really wanting the day of the Lord to come and and fall on those terrible Edomites. And those Moabites too. And those those Philistines as well. And those Syrians. Come day of the Lord. And take out these evildoers. But there is this reversal in the prophets. When the day of the Lord is going to come. And first deal with whom? With Judah. With Israel. With God's people. And that's what's happening here. Who can, who can endure? Who can stand when He appears? Now, how is this fulfilled? This sounds what we think of in terms of prophets, doesn't it? He's announcing what's going to happen in the future and denouncing sin. How was this fulfilled? Well, there are all sorts of ideas about who my messenger is. But it's really not difficult if we accept the New Testament as the Word of God. Because in the New Testament, my messenger is clearly identified four times in the Gospels. Uh, twice by Jesus, once by Mark, and once by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And all of these identify, by, by quoting, referring to Malachi, identify my messenger as John the Baptist, who was to come and clear out the way, prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. Well, if that's the case, then who is the messenger of the covenant? Obvious. It's Jesus. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. Now, what's remarkable about this identification of Jesus with the messenger of the covenant is that we find that who is the messenger of the covenant? He's the Lord himself. So here we have in the Old Testament, we have one of the the clearest references to what we would call the doctrine of the Trinity. Because we have here... In the Old Testament, we have the idea that the one who is coming, the one whom the Lord would send, and we now know that's Jesus, is both the Lord and sent by the Lord. He is the Lord, and He is the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. Now, what did Jesus do when He came? He came to the temple, and He did sometimes show up suddenly at the temple. And what did He do? He announced God's judgment on corrupt practices, particularly the corrupt religious practices of the priests of his day and the people as well. He kept the law of God in all of its respects, in the ceremonial respect, in, uh, with regard to moral purity, and with regard to love for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And as a result, many many priests turned to the Lord. There's a fascinating verse in Acts chapter 6, and it's talking about the extension of the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, and it says, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is all falling together, isn't it? My messenger, John the Baptist, 
Jesus, the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, he repeats some of the same message that Malachi is giving, and he keeps the law, and priests, as a result, become obedient to the faith and offer righteous sacrifices to the Lord. Now, um, there, there is, there is, however, here something of attention. Because Malachi preached what? Judgment. That's what he said here. He's coming to judge. A fire. A caustic lie. He's coming to purify. This is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. But when we find Jesus coming, he has a different tone about him, doesn't he? Yes, he thunders against unrighteousness, but at the same time, it's all about salvation. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about eternal life. And, and this, this seems to be a little bit in tension with, with Malachi's thundering announcement that the day of the Lord would be caustic and hot and fiery and painful. Toward the end of his life, John the Baptist was also kind of scratching his head, wasn't he? He was the, he was the messenger, my messenger, who came to, to clear the way for the Lord. And how did John preach? Wow, John preached like one of those Old Testament prophets, didn't he? The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Any tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be chopped down and cast into the fire. That's how he came, to prepare the way. And then Jesus came. He prepared the way for Jesus to bring the judgment, to bring the fire. And Jesus came. And he was meek. And he was lowly in heart. And he spent time with women in prostitution. And with tax collectors. And he touched lepers. And he healed them. And he hung out with the people nobody nobody wanted to be with. And and so the religious leaders were scratching their heads and saying, how could he be? A holy man, if he he lets that kind of a woman touch him. And John, at the end of his life, sent messengers and said, Are you are you the one? Are you the coming one? Or or should we wait for another? It didn't all seem to add up. Where, where's the judgment? Where's the fire? Where's the condemnation of the evildoers? Well, what Malachi couldn't see. And what John, not even John, could see was this. That yes, the judgment was coming. But it was coming in waves. It wasn't all coming at once. Yes, it was coming when Jesus came. And yes, when Jesus came, the judgment of God did come down. But it didn't come down on the evildoers. It came down on Jesus Himself. Jesus, the friend of sinners, He's the one who received the judgment of God in the place of evildoers who put their faith in Him. And that was the surprise, the glorious surprise, that He came to bring judgment down, but He took it upon Himself at first. For all who would place their faith in Him. But many didn't. Many of his own people. He came to his own, but his own received him not. 
But to as many as received Him, He gave them the right to become children of God. But many did not. And so some 40 years later, the judgment did come. It fell on Jerusalem. It fell on the temple. It fell on the priesthood. And it was wiped out. And then, we read in the New Testament, that one day, another messenger, angel, will prepare the way. And he will prepare the way by sounding a trumpet that last day. And the messenger of the covenant, the Lord himself, will come suddenly, unexpectedly, to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him and judgment, final judgment, to those who reject him. Now, this is more complicated than what we could perceive from Old Testament perspective, isn't it? It was clear in the Old Testament, the Lord, the messenger of the covenant is coming and judgment is coming and that's it. But thanks be to God that it's more complicated than than that. Because the question, who? Who can endure His coming? If that's all His coming was, if that's all it were, a bringing of judgment, who could stand when He appears? And the, the answer is, nobody. Nobody could stand when He appeared. Thanks be to God. He separated these judgments out. Because that gives all of us who live in between the two comings of Christ the opportunity to take advantage of the fact that the judgment fell and it fell on Jesus first. And it fell on Jesus first so that it will not fall on us if we will trust in Him and in Him alone and what He did for us on the cross. And so we, my friends, are in a a privileged position here, an advantageous situation, we have opportunity. One day the opportunity will be gone. When the next angel comes and sounds the trumpet, that's it. But God is being very, very patient with us now to give us an opportunity to come while we may And so, come. That's the invitation. I urge you to come now while there is the opportunity to come. You see, we need to recognize that we aren't the good guys. We're the bad guys. And that's precisely why Jesus came. But it's better to recognize that now than on the day when He comes again. So recognize that now and call upon Him because He is rich in mercy and prompt to save all who call upon Him. And how do we know that? Because He took the judgment. He took the punishment for all who will trust in Him. So come. Come and do not delay. Let's pray. Our God, indeed, Who shall endure? Who shall stand? Well, if you not, if you had not been extra patient with us, nobody. 
But we thank you that Jesus came and surprised us by taking that punishment that we deserve so that in that great day, when Jesus comes again on that last day and the throne is set up for judgment, that we can stand, we can endure that day if we are in Him. And I pray, O God, that while we have opportunity that we would believe in Jesus and so receive the forgiveness of our sins because He has paid the penalty therefore. My God, I pray that, that now, before that trumpet sounds, that we would be found in Him and that You would use us to get this message out to others that they may endure that day as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.